Hello everybody and welcome back to the Alien vs Predator Galaxy podcast. This is regular host Aaron Percival, aka Corporal Hicks, and joining me is my usual partner in crime, Ridge Top. Hello again everyone. Also known as Adam Zeller in the real world. And welcome to 2020. Uh, this is our first episode of the year. And not only is it our first episode of the year, this is, I think, a pretty reasonable milestone. Big 100. I can't really think of any... Now, I suppose Perfect Organisms made it past 100 as well, but, you know, not many of the Alien and Predator stuff have, have gone on this long. We started back in 2011, but it was only pretty sporadic until about 2015 when we actually started doing once, twice a month. And, uh, yeah, here we are. Well past 100 hours, but now hitting uh, episode 100. Now, I wanted to do something special for this one, something that was a little celebratory of the site's history, but I didn't want to make it, like, me or Adam or, um, or Darkness talking about pieces of, of our history, you know, um, things that we've done, because it's not going to be interesting for everybody. It might, it might be a bit specialist to the, the people who are actively involved in, in the community. But I wanted to do something that had something to do with that history. And AVP Galaxy was created as a resource for Aliens vs. Predator 2, the Monolith Productions game. It started in 2003 and just became what it has from from that resource for that game and you know it's a big part of adam and i's fandom development i guess you know we were both teens when this game came out and we we played the hell out of it you know as, as we sort of turned into young adults and i decided we were going to do something on the game i thought that would be a good way to celebrate 100 to celebrate the history of the site and i was fortunate enough to track down somebody who worked on that game. And I say track down like it was hard. Fortunately, it wasn't because this uh, this particular gent had put out some really good um, videos showing, um, you know, earlier versions of the game, some commentary on, on what he did and um, his experiences on the game. And he was kind enough to join us to uh, to do this episode today. So I would like to welcome Nathan Cheever to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm actually really honored to be a part of this because you guys have kept the whole history and activity alive for so long, so much longer than other games. So it's it's always exciting to, to be a part of something that's still around. It was a game, you know, you were a part of a game that has a really huge legacy in, in terms of this fandom because... You know, for a lot of people outside of isolation, you know, this is one of the top, top experiences, you know, not just gameplay, but narrative as well. So AVP2 is is a very, I think, important game for our community. And uh, thank you for being a part of that. Yeah, mm-hmm. thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. So first off, though, Nathan, before we do nerd out on, on AVP2, <laughs> you know, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself outside of your involvement with Alien and Predators? You know, for our listeners out there, who are you and what do you do? Okay. Well, I started in games over 20 years ago. Uh, the last game I released was Mafia 3 as the lead world designer, which is where I designed one huge city level so other levels could fit inside of it. And it's where different things could happen at different times. Back in the uh, 90s, I started with an art talent and I used that to get an internship on an RPG team that had a lot of people who had worked on the Wizardry RPG series, and which was the first computer game I ever played. So that's when I tried out level design for the first time, and I came back to it after trying out animation. And then in 1999, 
I moved back to Seattle where I got a world design job at uh, Sierra for Middle Earth Online, which was the first iteration of Lord of the Rings Online. And then that was shifted around and changed. So I ended up finding a next job at Monolith on AVP2 as a level designer. And by the way, all, all of what I'm saying is my opinion as a developer and not supposed to represent any company or team. Got to make sure you get that in there. Yeah, <laughs> little disclaimer. <laughs> Fair enough. And um, since AVP2, you've, you've stayed in... Um, you know, game design, game development. Mm-hmm. No, it's it's been a back and forth. It's all revolved around level design or map design or world design because that's sort of setting the stage for having uh, a story experience that players can choose how they want to approach it. And that's that's been the the biggest, greatest, funnest thing to do because you're you're sort of creating a movie as you go, a movie experience or a story experience or pick your own path adventure type thing. Mm. So very involved in the narrative without being the narrative kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, you could say that. I mean, the last project I was I was working with a narrative director to seed a lot of things to make sure that there was opportunity for things to grow off of in the environment and the level and the maps. Uh, and that's always exciting because I, I want other people to, to add stuff into the game experience and just take it to places I had never thought of. Now, whenever we have a guest on the show, and especially somebody in your position who's, you know, been tinkering in the toy box, you know, we we love to know about the first time you experienced um, the Alien or the or the Predator franchises. You know, uh, did you come to them through the movies, or was it some of the, um, you know, the other ancillary material? No, it was it was through the movies. The very first hand exposure I had was watching Aliens in this single theater while I lived in Alaska, and it was a a roller coaster ride because I didn't know what to expect because I hadn't actually seen the previous Alien film yet. And while I'd played a bit of the AVP2 arcade, it was playing this Alien board game by Leading Edge Games in college that pulled me in deeper to the movie franchise. And you know, the the funny thing about that is, is I actually did a level for that game, even though it was a paper layout. It had captivated me enough to put effort into doing that, though. So now that I think about it, I guess my level design before gaming was that <laughs> please tell me you still have that somewhere i do i have it packed up it's still a fun game i just have to dig it up and unpack it it's you know it's, it's, it's a board game but it's, it's it was an interesting thing you'd roll the dice and it'd tell you where the alien showed up and you had to deal with it well i i have the but i have that game there's actually a group on on facebook that's still dedicated to that because there's a flash version of it as well oh that's awesome so if, if you come across that level that you did for it you've got to send yeah. it in because uh, they'll love that on that group yeah i'll, I'll totally find it for you Brilliant. Is this the older Alien RPG you're talking about, or oh, it's not an RPG? It's uh, it's the same company that did the RPG, but they did a little board game with like uh, pewter models, uh, miniatures. But like the, the 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 game itself came with like little cardboard cutouts of the character that you put in the little stand things. But you could go out and buy these pewter models that you could paint and um, have on the thing instead. You've probably seen the Flash game. I'll send it to you after, and I'll actually throw it up on. Yeah, I must have seen it somewhere. This, so yeah, that that is really cool. That is not something we've heard before. Mm, it was fun. I liked it. And again, it was a college type game back when you know I think internet was just starting. So you know there wasn't you had to work. Uh, well, your social circle was your local area rather than the internet. And how about the uh, the Predator films? Do you remember the first time seeing those ones? Yeah, that was those were VHS ones. Actually, wait, the first one was, and then I think I saw the second one in the theater. And that was wait, Predator came out before Aliens, right? Or was it around the same time? It was a year after Predator okay. was uh, eighty seven. Okay, yeah. Then uh, no, that one I saw. 
not in a theater, but um, I've enjoyed both of those. And you know, it's funny how they they all kind of try to discover new things, but they still sort of become trapped inside of their franchises when it comes to movies. So I'm still waiting for something big to come out with the, either of those. The the last few haven't really gone down too well. <laughs> it must be said. Yeah, bit diverse. What would you say is your favorite favorite movie of the, the franchises? I, I like the first one tonally and, you know, uh, pacing and sort of the unwrapping and mystery of what it is. The second one, though, it's it's basically a video game. It's got everything <laughs> that draws you into all the blips and the, the pacing and the, the different archetypes of people that you're dealing with and strategies. So it's like if that movie didn't exist, I wonder how games would be today. Like, what would they draw upon for inspiration? Yeah, Halo would, uh, would look a lot different, mm-hmm. that's for certain. Oh, yeah. And did you have much experience with uh, the games prior to your involvement with AVP 2, like uh, AVP Classic, Alien Trilogy, or Resurrection for PlayStation? Uh, I had naturally played the the first AVP game by Rebellion to research AVP 2. Um, But since my mind was full of Middle-Earth fantasy, it allowed me to kind of swim in that dark and edgy horror again. So I tend to play games related to what I'm currently working on. So I haven't played uh, any other major alien games of depth since then, except Isolation. That that one, I went out of my way to, to carve out time and play that because that was it really captured the feeling and the essence of that, that big retro clunky 80s sci-fi, which was great. After uh, Monolith, I shifted to a supernatural horror game called The Suffering. So I haven't played any AVP games since Isolation since AVP2. But I've used all that knowledge of pacing and technique to deal with sort of tense moments in all the games I've worked in since then. Mm. Yeah, I've been meaning to play The the Suffering myself. I'm a big fan of uh, horror games in general, but specifically from Monolith, I personally really miss when they did more horror games like the Fear games and the Condemned games. Like I'm, yeah. I'm a big fan of those ones. Yeah, actually, now I think about it, The Suffering had a wall walker. The Slayer was essentially an alien that could walk on walls. <laughs> Did you work on the... Wasn't there a sequel to The the Suffering as well? Or Yeah, there was a sequel sure that went right was. into it. Um, it was the only sequel I worked on. And I always say this to other people that I've worked with or uh, other game developers, that when you work on one game, and by the time you finish, the whole team has figured out exactly what to do, what works, what doesn't work. You understand what each person's superpower is. And if, you get, if you're lucky enough, you can roll right into a sequel and then you spend most of your time being creative rather than trying to jump over some technical hurdles. And uh, so that was the only time I had that experience. And I would love to have that experience again. If you could keep the, the people that worked on Alien games together, the second one's always going to be better than their previous one. Yeah, I feel like in general, especially recently, horror games are seeing a bit of a resurgence. I think ever since that PT demo on PS4, there was a big shift, I think, from horror games moving more towards action, like you saw with like Dead Space 2 and Dead Space 3. But now I feel like it's going back in the other direction, especially with a lot of uh, indie titles and things like Alien Isolation as well. So uh, yeah. it's been really cool to see. But as far as AVP2 is concerned, uh, if we're not mistaken, it was one of your first professional gigs in the games industry. So what was the story of your involvement with that and how it came to be? Well, it's, it's actually, it was sort of my sixth game project. And four of those were at that first company I started at. And then my CR gig at Middle Earth Online. So by the time I started working on AVP, I'd, uh, it was my sixth game, but I'd only been in the industry for about four years. But it was, they had already had something cooking when I showed up and it was on maybe a, maybe a second iteration. So I, I was really um, happy to work on it. It was a fun game to work on and a good team there too. 
So talk to me about your responsibilities on AVP2 then. Your website lists your role as a level designer, lighting artist, and scripter. What, what, for, for the un- uninitiated out there, what exactly does that entail? Okay. Level designer was the core of what I did on. Um, but back then, Monolith had this awesome editor where uh, the type of game and you could do everything you need, everything you wanted to do, you could do inside of that editor. Whereas today, there's there's so many different facets to the game production that you need a lot of people involved. So I would just take the paper description for the chapter level they were wanting, and I'd build it from the ground up. So layout, lighting, scripting, interactions, game balancing, all that stuff. I even did a little bit of texture art and some dedicated artists. There was several good ones there. Uh, took most of my stuff and made it you know, a thousand times better. But that that experience itself was really satisfying. It was one of the best ones I've had in my industry because you could do everything and discover and iterate on your own uh, without going through a committee of people. So it was actually fairly kind of free reign then, I guess, would you say? Yeah, surprisingly, I don't think there would be that much free reign these days because they had, uh, there was like half a dozen different level designers and each one had kind of just taken a a paper idea and developed it from that because we didn't have a an environmental lead artist so each person sort of built and was inspired by different movie things to create their own environments and then later we had to sort of figure out well how do you how do you meld all these different designs together and like the the suspended pods in AVB2 probably about three or four different design sets and it wasn't until I was on my second iteration that I tapped into the Nostromo style set, which became sort of the baseline style for most of the spaces. Uh, the lobby section in the middle of the pods was a different design section and still remained. So you you worked primarily on the, the pod levels, is that right? Yeah, that was, I worked a little bit at the beginning and the uh, in my spare time, I put together all those switch boxes, all those hack boxes, all those breakable doors and things like that. And then so I was putting those throughout the rest of the game to kind of give some interaction moments, which again, weren't that big at the time. Usually you would just go up, hit a button or even the doors themselves would just automatically open in those type of games. So this was something that slowed the player down and made him think about it and, and sort of use his toolkit differently to, to get by an obstacle. But the pods themselves were the things I spent most of my time on, which was alien related and marine related. And now that's actually one, I think one of the, the big sort of parts of AVP2, you know, is, is the pod missions, you know, when it overlaps in the narrative as well, you know, when you've got the Predator and uh, he looks up and he sees the alien who's just been there earlier and you can see the Predator down there and the, the Marine shows up with his the prison stuff on. That that was a big part. I think that was the, one of the more defining parts of that game as well, which is cool. They did a good job at writing in those different crossover paths where... You could get those moments, but not completely jeopardize or change what it was for the other species going through their own timeline. Yeah, that that's one of the things that a lot of people love this game for. But you you mentioned um, the destructible doors. Then that's something I loved in in the game, and again, it's something that you think is you would think is pretty commonplace now, but not really back then. So was that just all entirely off that that feature, just entirely off your back? No, other people had done you know, the core of it, I just kind of modified what it was, but it was just taking a door model and doing in three or four different states and just flipping through it. And just that quick rapid, rapid appearance of it would be enough to make it feel like it was an animated and the same with like, you know, the aliens busting into the doors and you see the bulges pump out, you know, when you're on the other side and you see the tracker blipping, you're like, they're right on the other side. You know, it was, it was just all smoke and mirrors, but that sort of bag of anticipation and horror stuff was used really well throughout the whole game yeah cannot argue with you there at all um, i i replayed 
a good chunk of the marine campaign recently actually and i'd forgotten how effective it actually was at feeling you know that that tension from aliens mm-hmm. and then the cat jumped on me and scared me shitless <laughs> <laughs> they they had a good a good wind up at the beginning of the game where you know like the first level or two there was no actual aliens but they had that tension there and they had some some fake outs with the bugs and falling pipes and that wasn't me that was i think it was bill vandervoort who did that section and it was good and I'm glad they kept that rather than getting the pressure from some people to be like you just got to jump in and just start fighting it's like give it a chance to pace in build it up yeah, yeah I mean eventually the game would get to plenty of action but there were some great build up moments like when you see other humans get dragged into the vents and stuff like the game is genuinely spooky in some parts and I really mm-hmm. love that aspect of it so what what was the state of the game like when you would join the project you know you you said that you came into it after about a year I think and uh, I think you mentioned on your website there was a little bit of a lack of vision for what it was for what it was going to be for a year. So you know what 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 was the state of the game like? Well, they had already gone through one iteration, so they had a good story vision for it. It was just sort of uh, like I was saying, there wasn't a um, the 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 concept, the visual aspect of what the environments were were kind of open ended. I mean, they had been working on character designs for a while, had a lot of good of those. And I'm pretty sure they had already proven the first playable to give Fox Interactive the confidence of funding the larger team, which allowed me to join them. And some of these guys came from Monolith Blood FPS series, so they already knew some of the pacing and, and familiarity with the tech. The uh, majority of story beats and locations had already been decided, like the suspended pod labs were already an idea, but it had yet to be concepted. The biggest difference looking back was that the protagonist, Harrison, was Asian before I got there. And he changed to a red-blooded regular jarhead. Okay, so there, there wasn't too much in terms of um, it. It didn't change too much over over the course of the you know the rest of the production while you were on it. Then you know they knew what it wanted to be, but they had to design yeah, it. Yeah, they had to figure it out. So I mean, things shrunk. Like every project does, you start really big and then you start, you know, as a schedule set in and tech limitations set in, you start pulling it down. Like there was a there was a segment where you would take a a monorail system from. I guess the, the the landing base to the suspended pods. So there was a section that was originally planned where you would be riding this sort of train through a canyon and aliens would be jumping on and attacking you. But at the time, obviously, that was a bit ambitious for the tech at the time. Speaking of things that then didn't quite make it, something that you really surprised me with was sharing some pictures of a model of Lance Hendrickson that you created for AVP2. And you mentioned that you were wanting to get Michael Bishop from Alien 3 into the game. So what, what's the what's the story about that? You know, was, was, was he a replacement for Eisenberg or...? Well, I was a big Lance Hendrickson fan from Aliens and then Millennium was big at the time. And he had just done VO for the game Run Like Hell. So I knew it wasn't a new topic to work in games. So I went straight to the Fox Interactive producer to see if he was even open to the idea, since it'd be a funding thing before a story thing. And I wanted to have his role adapted from the Dr. Eisenberg role uh, to be sort of embedded in the AVP story more with the movie franchise. So I, I modeled up a likeness to Lance, made the pitch, but it unfortunately didn't go anywhere. And I don't know for what the reasons were. Maybe things were already set in motion uh, or there just wasn't that much enthusiasm because it was just me going, hey, this this would be a great opportunity to tie it in. Would have, Like I said, it would have yeah, would have grounded it more into the franchise. And it would have been personally, I'd be great to like, hey, I could see him in a recording booth or something. Well, the model was really freaking good as well. Yeah, it was 
just using parts, other parts from the game and with a couple changes and then just working on a likeness of his face. So I would have loved to see him animated and move throughout. Maybe that was another consideration, too, because it would have involved a whole nother official model scheduling that, doing animations for that, rewriting the whole game and or tweaking it or something like that. But it is what it is. He did show up in a, a, a future game, though, if I remember right. A couple, yeah. Yeah, a couple. He's very much Sigourney, him, and uh, William Hope from Aliens are mm-hmm. pretty much the most prolific um, alien folk because they've gone on to do several games and other recordings and stuff like that. So, yeah, Lance was in AVP 2010, which was um, essentially AVP 3, I suppose. And yeah. Colonial Marines as well. Yeah, he was in Colonial Marines, and he was actually in Colonial Marines as Bishop and mm. Michael Bishop. Yep. That's right, that's right. That's where I saw him. Achiever is actually mentioned in one of the pickup logs as you're exploring the environments in AVP2. Is that a nod to you personally? Oh, yeah. That um, that log included a bunch of other people who worked on the game. There's probably some others in the game that were named from the team. So it was just kind of like a little wink, wink, nod. And I did do some of the logs uh, in the game, although I, I couldn't tell you which ones from memory unless I read them all. I tried to put in some loose connections to other 80s sci-fi films. I had a nod to Blade Runner with a Tenhauser gate that was caught and removed by the producer. I had another <laughs> one that was uh, so vague about an IO mining operation. It made it into the game, but that was a reference to the film Our Outland. Band. Yes, that's that's an unofficial alien film. Yeah. That is. Oh, that's awesome. And as far as the uh, Nostromo map you've shared, could you tell us a little bit about that one? Was this always just something for yourself or were there ambitions to have it release as an official map like uh, some of the other movie based maps? It was a, a fun side project. I wanted to simply make it. And at the time, it was hard to find a layout reference to the ship. So it was exciting to try and visualize how it was actually laid out because it was never an official thing there was never an official schedule so it was dropped in by bits and bits and until i was no longer at monolith another pet project i had was to create sort of a a designer's cut that would have modded in some cut levels and content some changes to the ui and uh, balance things a little differently and uh, one of the bits was turning the smuggler richter into the first owner of the betty from the aliens resurrection so I would have replaced the Aura, which was a miniature version of the Nostromo with the Betty in the game itself. So that was, you know, another thing that was shelved because I started focusing on supernatural material for the Suffering game and I never got a chance to go back to it. But there is footage of that available online. With the news post that we put up, we'll, we'll make sure that we link to Nathan's website, which you guys should all go check out um, because there's stuff to, there is a video of like the Nostromo map that Adam just mentioned. All the, the switches and stuff that Nathan mentioned earlier, there's like a big showcase of those as well, which is pretty cool. So definitely go check um, check his website out when, when we're done. When you're done listening here, then go check them. <laughs> And you were solely responsible for the multiplayer map Alley, and it was easily the most dynamic map from the game involving trigger points and a secret area. Could you tell us more about your mentality while working on that map? Yeah, there was a small gap between wrapping up AVP2 and starting a new monolith project when the team did some of this add-on content. And now that we all knew what was possible and what we had in the library of game assets, it was fun to design this new content around all those features. So I'm pretty sure I had some art help and of course some debugging helping, but 95% of it was all me. And I was sort of tapped into the zeitgeist of FPS and aliens at the time to sort of push the, the typical multiplayer map a step further by adding this multi-stage element. And the level was made to min-max each of the 
of the uh, species superpowers and limitations, like the Predator could leap up to higher pathways quicker than Marines, but they lost their cloaking ability when it randomly rained outside. I think in one of the three game types, the ship I actually left a copy of was that Nostromo Oro ship and it was underneath the evac area. So there was some spaces where it was rough around the edges, but it was it was an exciting, fun, satisfying map to make. It was always one of my favorites to play as well. You know, just because it had that extra element of having to pop to the hive first, whereas you could, you know, you could send somebody to go and do the hive. Somebody else went to try and secure the landing zone. It was just so much extra dynamics to the gameplay of that that made that one one of the better or the best, really, map for the game. So uh, yeah. it was fun. I I I really like that because it's sort of setting in sort of mini objectives inside of a multiplayer environment. Where at the time this was mm, this was right around the time Counter Strike was coming out, which did have some sort of staged objectives in some ways, but I hadn't seen that before, and I just I wanted a chance to to do more inside of a, a, a multiplayer space rather than just running around and shooting guys and then respawning and then starting over again. I, I think it worked pretty well. <laughs> I've got to be honest. Cool. AVP2 was really the the first game to introduce elements from the films that have since become staples within the alien gaming landscape. You know, it was the first with the hand welder, um, with the electric lockpick, the shoulder lamp. Um, yeah, because you didn't have shoulder lamp in the first in the first AVP. Then no. So why why AVP2 was was it a case of the technology just being there with the then current iteration of the Lithtech engine, or was it a case of being a game design aspects that the others just hadn't capitalized on yet well over at monolith no one lives forever had already set the foundation for player tool variety and interaction with the environment besides just shooting enemies so adding those alien elements felt like a natural step I, I do remember some technical issues with the hand welder, like we couldn't do a dynamic or traced seal line, so we opted for those sort of soldering or uh, soldering bricks around it. I, and one thing I really wanted to do was get the motion tracker in the actual 3D space rather than just a UI element, so you could make it a handheld and the player's tension could rise because they could only hold a pistol if they wanted the tracker in their hand, whereas they, if they wanted to have a two-handed gun for protection, they had to put it away. But that was just the the guys over at Monolith had really sort of had their own, I guess, thrust into the FPS world with No One Was Forever that really broke out of the, the mold and that we just benefited by pulling all those things together into AVP. Well, that's cool. I mean, it kind of goes into the next question as well, you know, which is how the current, what would have been the current gaming landscape at the time played into AVP2. You know, when, when a game lands big, I think it's fair to say that a lot of other games tend to incorporate elements into it. So you mentioned on your website, you know, that Fox Interactive had actually suggested things like Quake jump pads in AVP2's multiplayer because of Quake 3. So obviously with uh, No One Lives Forever, you know, that had a positive impact on, on the game. But did you find you had many sort of suggestions like that um, or actually incorporate anything that was currently big at the time? Yeah, I, I remember when we got the, the idea that Fox was like, hey, you need to add jump pads. And we were like the classic huh moment when we heard that. And But <laughs> thankfully, Monolith was pretty good at keeping odd and weird ideas out of the aliens experience. I felt like there was a lot of upper management conversations and debates going on between monolith producers and Fox Interactive ones I didn't know about though. One of the sort of semi-controversial things done the multiplayer was balancing those three species to be better one-on-one. So a predator uh, could easily shred one alien and one marine by themselves. So that had to be toned down and the smart gun uh, would always be the weapon of choice for marines without this sort of counterbalancing. So the design choice made uh, throughout multiplayer 
helped actually, I think, increase the longevity and fun of the game itself rather than being rigid to the actual realistic, if you want to call it that, rules of the Alien franchise. But there wasn't anything else really strange or bizarre that, that crept into it, though, which was nice. It was the, the jump pads, though, was a classic one. Yeah, that just seems... I couldn't imagine that game with jump pads in it. That was... Yeah, I, I love Quake 3, but that would have been a little out of place. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty natural that during any game's development cycle, features are conceived and then dropped. Computer Games Magazine talked about the possibility of customizable player models, a feature that would eventually appear in Aliens Colonial Marines. There's reports of seeing a Predator sword as a weapon. Could you tell us a little about the more memorable features that never happened and the reasoning behind them being dropped? I know you've already mentioned a few of them, but as far as the customization goes, were you involved with that one at all? As with uh, any project, there's always that blue sky, everything is possible period. And I don't remember the customizable players, although it sounds like a natural feature to consider, at the very least, different player character models to the player story. But then the production and the tech realities would set in and, you know, you'd have to support multiple VOs for both male and female player characters. And I I don't remember anything about the, the Predator Sword. I do remember some things getting cut like the animal life that was more relevant to those earlier predator levels. And that came down to just the quality of the product. And those those trees for the predator on that planet were so awful. But they, they were pivotal to his training and stealth opportunities. So at least you could say they were alien trees on an alien planet dealing with the low-tech considerations we had at the time. But you, you remember the first iteration of Aliens Colonial Marines, right? It was um, it was on the E3 the floor. The two one? Yeah, it was on the uh, the E3 floor the same year as AVP2. And so my impression, it was more driven by Fox Interactive producers than the developers' producers, which I don't remember who they were right now. And that didn't go anywhere because of tech or AI problems, I think. Whereas Monolith already had several games under their Lith Tech belt, which helped AVP2 spend more time on the creative scenarios than getting uh, than just getting the game to run. So I, I actually, I think Lith Tech is still the underlying structure for what's running their Shadow of Mordor's game. I think they might have actually switched. I do think some of their, their later horror games were still on Lith Tech, but I was actually just looking at that, and I believe they created a new engine for their, their big open world games. I think it was called the Firebird engine, maybe? Okay. Let's see here. Lith Tech Firebird. Oh, it's still Lith Tech. It's just a different iteration of it, I guess. So you're right, yeah. They, it could just be a nut, my name only and a couple of structure pieces, you know, but it's all internal to them. Yeah, I guess AVP2 was Lith Tech Talon and then there's Lith Tech 3, Discovery Jupiter. So there's just, yeah, many different iterations of the same engine, I guess, but it is fundamentally the same engine. It was it was all variants because at the time they were trying to spin up an engine licensing that other games could pull from. And so we had the Talon, which was a slight variant. The Jupiter, I think, was uh, known as forever. And then I think they had one other one where they had one for Tron, and then they had sort of the, the thing that they were trying to license out to people. It's too bad they didn't take off, but they gained a lot of internal experience and tech from it. Yeah, I mean, across Monolith's games, I've always been really impressed with their engines. And just like, I guess just like the feel of an engine, it's it's hard to describe it. If, if you're a gamer, like, you know if something's the Unreal Engine, if you're, if you're into, like, video game development. Even if the game has a completely different art style, you can kind of get a sense, like... You might not be able to tell it immediately, but it's like, oh, this was made with an Unreal. And I think Lith Tech was just one of those engines that had its own distinctive style. Yeah, Fear and Condemned that took it even a step further. And I'm sure there's stuff they did for Tron that uh, isn't... <laughs> 
you, you don't get a chance to use those 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 special features on different games because again they rarely did sequels but that's that's funny that you mentioned that um the original ps2 colonial marines also appeared at that same e3 i've i had forgotten that it was the same year but i remember specifically that they had had a uh, a rough e3 i guess like they they had a a demo on the floor, I believe. And you remember this footage, Aaron, where like the aliens aren't really attacking the player. And yeah, yeah, that's still on uh, YouTube. That uh, is. Yeah. There was a, a test build of that game floating around the internet. We were trying to get our hands on it, but unfortunately, oh, wow. it never materialized. Yeah, yeah, the guy just stopped talking, didn't mm-hmm. he? I don't know, maybe you got a cease and desist or something. But uh, during during the press rounds for AVP2, there seemed to be an emphasis on the interactions between teammates and being able to do things like issue orders. But this was a feature that also didn't appear in the final game. Can you shed any light on to why that specific feature was dropped? I can't remember the reasons, uh, other than it's really hard to do good companion AI. It seems every other project I work on starts with a desire for this, which eventually gets cut down just because of complexity. Like, for example, uh, on Turok in 2008, what I worked on, uh, you were supposed to have a companion girl that ran around with you in the jungle. So she was cut for obvious reasons. Some of it's also design-wise, too, trying to come up with creative ways to use a companion. But the, the funny trivia about her was she was inspired by Newt from the Aliens film. Always love a bit of crossover. Yeah, that uh, the Turok game was trying to do everything in a in a handbasket. I mean, there was aliens and cars, and I think it was probably about two games in one. But that was an example where you wanted to to just do everything that was exciting to you underneath one label and one project, and that's where those could have been cut up into two different projects. I also gotta give you some praise for the, for that game. By the way, one of my uh, local best friends and I had really good memories with that Turok reboot, and I was sad that it never got a sequel. But I thought that one was really well done personally they were working on a sequel where yeah, that's what um, i had heard yeah they they got all the way to the point where you could i think you, you could ride dinosaurs or and or maybe like mentally control them or something it was i, I wasn't at the company anymore i just heard about them trying to do that stuff and just D- disney in general from the get-go they were kind of like well they didn't quite understand it because this was like this heavy duty run and gun and shoot and you know like starship troopers type thing so it's too bad that they didn't get a chance to do the sequel because again if you're able to do a sequel on something it's always going to be better than the uh, first one assuming there's enough time to sort of massage out the kinks yeah i believe that's when disney was trying to get into game de- development under their uh, touchstone label if i'm not they were mistaken. going all around yeah they were buying a bunch of developers up and then they all eventually uh, got laid off and collapsed which is too bad oh, that was a big thing though at the time for all sort of media companies they were like let's shift over to this new thing called video games and we'll expand our our franchises and and uh, entertainment base through that but it's it's not it's not like doing a tv show you know there's there's a lot more complexity and each project has their own like individual problems they shine disney specifically since that relates to us are shying away from from games now aren't they that having too much of an involvement mm-hmm. which is unfortunate yeah. for us because they now own fox next and um called iron studios that are doing the um doing the next aliens game so we're all kind of wondering what's going to happen with that yeah yeah fox interactive i believe shut down and then they started Fox Next, which they've done some projects. I know they did kind of like an interactive Planet of the Apes, sort of one of those heavy rain type games, you know, where it's, it feels like an interactive movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have yet to try that one. But yeah, there's some 
uncertainty regarding what they're going to do with Fox next. And back in the day, Disney also tried their involvement just under the Disney label with a few games. I don't know if you ever played. Um, uh, what was it called? Split Second was one. They were both racing games. Split Second was like a vehicle game, but it was like you're driving through a movie set or something. And there was also uh, an ATV racing game called Pure. And I, I thought those were both great. So I was a little disappointed that Disney just kind of dipped their toes in game publishing and then ran away from it, it seems. Yeah, most uh, game or most media companies now, they tend to, I think they got a little bit more smart about it and they they take the license and they contract it out essentially to an established company. That's what you see with like the Avengers games and Star Wars games and things like that, um, which is maybe a little smarter because then if something doesn't work, you can just disconnect the contract rather than trying to figure out what to do with all these people that are underneath you. The Fox next one though, I'm, I'm curious where they're going to go with that though. And it's, you know, small world as I, I knew one of the guys working on that who's no longer there, but I know that he was worried at the time, you know, with the Fox and Disney purchase, if they would still survive and they made it through it. So obviously, Fox must have or Disney must have seen something in the project. Yeah, as far as the um, just the expanded universe for aliens and predator in general seems to have been just going along as normal. Like it's been great. All the, the novels and comics have been really high quality that we've gotten. So starting next year, it's been a, a while since we've received some video games in the franchise. So it'll be really good to, to have those again. Yeah, that uh, is it Ilphonic the doing the yeah. predator game right now? Yeah, predator hunting grounds. There's there's uh, monolith dna in that team there's a couple guys there that worked on at monolith or on avp that are part of that right now oh that's cool that's a nice little connection as well that's actually quite fun i played um played the pre-alpha that um euro gamer over here and it's, it's actually quite interesting I'm, I'm really looking forward to getting my hands on a more polished version of that game i'm really mm-hmm. looking forward to that so from some of the comments i've seen from other people who worked on the game it looks like fox interactive weren't the best working partners uh, one particular person commented that when asked for reference material for the the queen all that was sent over was that test footage of the garbage bag queen that uh, <laughs> St- stan winston did so was was that typical of your experience working with Fox Interactive on AVP. Yeah, back uh, back then, my impression of game dev was a bit more of Wild West. If you could talk to the right people at the in the right way, it was easier to get a project going. So that meant you had to have some people who might have preferred to be in the booming film industry, but were not. So they were in this video game effort. So that's how I felt like Fox Interactive was at the time. And it, I was surprised we didn't get that much stuff. There wasn't a lot of behind the scenes material we got. So a lot of the team efforts were gleaned from magazine articles and a ton of screen captures from the movie. I do remember hearing they sent that footage of the Alien Queen. And I actually think it was like on a Betamax tape or something. It was just one of those like, really, this is all you can got for us? Oh, God, that's I was awful. surprised. <laughs> so, did you not have much personal interaction um, with them for reference or anything? Was... No, I think I saw them, the, the producers a couple times. It was just two guys. Like I said, I did hear some stories about, you know, heated debates in the upper offices between both groups of producers. And I'm sure there's some good stories there, but I couldn't tell you what they are. Fair enough. Fair enough. I believe there was some talk of AVP2 actually being ported across to PlayStation 2 and Xbox. We would eventually have got AVP Extinction, but that that wasn't 2. That was was an RTS. It was a completely different thing. Do you remember much about what happened to those ports? Well, I don't remember any direct talks about an AVP port. Do, however, remember a lot of the pain the team had who ported No One Lives Forever over to the PS2. And if that hadn't been such a challenging experience, maybe there would have been an obvious AVP2 port. 
I personally would have loved to see Sega or whoever owns the rights to do like a remaster with all of their assets they have now from the recent games for AVP2. But that's, you know, another franchise licensing issue. Yeah, I've been hoping to see that myself for so long. I mean, it's a shame because Rebellion re-released theirs on PC, their 99 game under the classic 2000 name. And Mm -hmm. uh, it was really good just to have that compatible on modern systems. I mean, we're we're super thankful for the fans that that keep AVP2 alive with their mods and and stuff like that. But I feel like there's a whole bunch of people that have never had the pleasure of uh, discovering this game, that if it was to receive a a big re-release, that they would. So it's, it's really unfortunate that the licenses licensing issues haven't been resolved yet but i guess you never know like the old blade runner pc game just got released on good old games and yeah i've been like waiting for that one to be compatible with modern machines forever so yeah that's i just saw that too and that's that's good for them because that was another sort of experimental stylized game with some crazy tech and and that like if they remastered that one with that whole story structure i'd be happy to you know put down some bucks for that Aliens vs. Predator 2 would eventually be followed by Primal Hunt, a prequel add-on by Third Law Interactive, but AVP wouldn't return to the first-person shooter genre until the release of Rebellion's Aliens vs. Predator in 2010. Was there ever any talk of what Monolith would do if they had developed a sequel? I'm sure there was some discussion before AVP 2 was was released. My impression is Fox Interactive had a multi-game deal with Monolith, and there wasn't a desire to sign a new series of titles with them. And then Vinvendi Universal Games purchased Fox in 2003. So that could have been a factor since Monolith is wanting to diversify and work more with Warner Brothers. I would have personally loved to do a sequel for all the obvious reasons. And uh, again, like I said, it's the best time to do it once the team knows everything. But the whole AVP2 team was broken up and absorbed into three other projects. Actually, you know, I wish we at least had a release party to celebrate everyone's efforts. At the time, though, AVP2 was sort of viewed, I think, internally by some as sort of this franchise title that wasn't fully, you know, created from scratch. So it was kind of looked down on. But I think also at the time is one of the best selling ones for the company. Yeah, I mean, it's not only just a highlight of the franchises that we're fans of, but just PC gaming in general. I remember back in the day making a big splash in like PC Gamer magazine and right up there with I think games like Counter-Strike, it was pretty well recognized. So yeah, it's a shame you guys didn't get a party for that. (laughs) You definitely deserved one. It's kind of what's weird about games, and I've said this to other people too, is that it's it's the one media or story framework that dies off pretty quick. You know, with books, they can sit on the shelf forever. With videos and films, you can pick them up later. But with video games, it's the technology changes so much that you start losing some of those things. So doing like a remaster or an update to make it run on modern systems is just the lifeline to keeping those things alive. And it's, I wish technology would get to a point where it's stabilized, where you're not trying to like rebuild the movie camera every time you want to shoot a new film and that you're able to focus on the creativity and have it, all those past versions exist for legacy and for anyone else to view, you know, years from now. Yeah. And people have been talking about that a lot with like game preservation and stuff. And that's definitely something that that I personally am passionate about. And it's a shame. Yeah. A lot of these games are just lost to time when I feel like they they could be restored and they could be re-released and stuff. But um, while Monolith did a fantastic job on AVP2, it's enjoyed a life that is active even now. You know, it's one of the few games from the early 2000s that you can still find 
active multiplayer servers on. And that's largely been down to the fans that have continued to support it uh, way past the official support, whether that was through custom content or bringing the servers back online. It's been community-driven content and modding that means we can still play it today or enjoy new content. Obviously, a large part of this was down to the official tools that Monolith released and supported. But that's really not something that happens very frequently these days. You don't see official mod support much anymore. But what do you think personally about fan-created content and the lack of support for that kind of modding nowadays? I I remember pushing to make sure there was a fan mod package released for AVP2. Uh, modding for me is what keeps so many titles alive. So I'm again, I'm amazed and impressed at the AVP community for keeping all these titles alive. And I know it's not easy, so I commend anyone who contributed to making it possible. I do wish more titles allowed modding. Consoles have a bigger consumer base though so the funding for those projects usually don't have modding in the budget since that's typically a pc thing that doesn't generate money for the publisher it also opens them to criticisms for you know what might have worked before it was cut because they can dig into the code so it's hard to be an well it's also hard to be an enthusiastic developer when there's so many toxic comments about what the team did that was lame or wasn't released and why everything in the world wasn't put in to top quality possibilities. So that also makes it harder for people inside of a team to use their extra time to be able to figure out if there was modding, what could we do to support it? So I understand why modding is not as big as it is, relatively speaking, a decade or more ago. I just wish it was more more possible, I guess, with today's tech. Yeah, I would think the focus on, um, I guess, really just monetization and, and multiplayer worlds makes publishers a little more averse to it, I would think, as averse to letting players alter the game. It's a shame because, you know, it, it does keep that community alive. And the longer it's alive, the more that people buy the base game and also join in on the fun. So it's, I don't know. I mean, I understand the, the mentality of, of the focus on the console because obviously modding on that's harder. But then you have things like Doom bringing Snap Map to it. And even before that, you still had some degree of um, custom level design with Time Splitters. You know, that was, that was PS2 mm-hmm. era. I don't, I don't know. I, I guess I feel a little bit spoiled being a fan of AVP2 and a play, uh, you know, a, a, a game of, of AVP2 because I've always had that, that custom content there. So it's always a bummer when none of the rest of the games come with that support. And, you know, especially in this more competitive gaming environment now, they, they drop off quicker, you know. As, as crappy as Colonial Marines actually was, the multiplayer was fun, but everybody moved on from that really quickly. Yeah. And... You know, perhaps if there'd have been some support to allow us to do what we wanted with it, that might have lasted a bit longer. But that's definitely one of the issues too. Is is it's the the how much stuff gets pushed on to the consumer so quickly, and you, you feel like, man, I I've got to I got to stay at the crest of the wave going forward because that's where everyone's talking about it. And then a new thing shows up. And so as you, as you start working or as you start playing something, it might be something that's already like passe and you got to like jump to the next thing or put it down because no one else will be talking about it. Whereas the modding stuff, because games were more infrequent back then and modding was less complicated. Like now it, things are so complicated with all the systems and multiple editors and things like that. It's, it's probably pretty difficult to mod, you know, doing a full-fledged mod that involves layout changes and things like that. So you'd have to take extra effort to make sure that there is some sort of just basic professional consumer support for a full-fledged mod or bake something into like they're doing um, some scenario stuff in some games now where you're allowed to set up different scenarios with their parts yeah i know ubisoft's been doing that with like their assassin's creed games they had some user created little uh story missions and stuff but even they had to quell that for like uh i guess there was like xp farming going on so 
I guess it's just always a balance. Like you see some really good first, uh, like single player game mods these days, like Grand Theft Auto and Resident Evil 2, just like hilarious mods. But it's it's more rare that you see people creating their their own levels, which if there was just like an official level builder, something like like even like Time Splitters back in the day, Aaron, you played that a bit as well, didn't you? Like they just had a big they just had a big map designer built right into the game. And I would like to see a lot more stuff like that. But it's unfortunate. We're, get, we're getting old these days in the world of gaming. It's true, but if they had actually... I agree with all that stuff because I think it, it, it sort of generates creativity with people to try out things. You know, it might be somewhat prepackaged, but at least they're able to express something. And that by itself allows a person to maybe start their career in game design. And whereas now you have to go to school and you have to get you have to get just poured onto a bunch of tech stuff to be able to even get the get the car rolling up the hill. So it'd be nice if they supported more of those things for those various reasons, or just for people who aren't even game designers who want to try something fun and just you know you could be like, wow, I hadn't thought of that before. As far as your I guess specialty in terms of uh, level design and art, like how how tech intensive is that? Like, do you do a lot of programming yourself, or is it more just management and design aspects of that sort of thing? It it depends on the the uh, tech base, which can change project to project. Like uh, two projects ago, I was on a proprietary tech base, which everyone had to learn coming in. And then the last project I was on was Unreal. So that's something that you can just look anywhere to find information on. So it's a technical in the sense of like making sure you understand the concepts of what's being built and know where all the buttons are, even though they're labeled differently in different programs. And in the past, the way a typical level designer was, was they would do everything, even the scripting. But now as things get more complex and spaced out, for uh, ultimately what is just a better graphical fidelity because that's the thing that's improved over the past several decades is the way things look but the actual game architecture hasn't you know game playable architecture hasn't changed that much like we're still dealing with like i don't know maybe 10 or 12 characters on screen for a typical fps type thing that uh it can be technical but there's more specialists involved in that technical aspect so you could have someone that's dedicated to, to just the layout and then they hand it off to a guy that's actually going to script up the location. A little bit of that happened in AVP was we would have guys do all the levels as full as they could. And then you'd have a second group come in and try to sort of massage out how all these levels fit together through some scripting and additional things like that. So there was a strike team that did do some of that. But in theory, you could do everything yourself. And I guess in theory, you could do everything yourself with Unreal or proprietary tech. You just got to know how to do it. But that's just once after all the assets are made. Like the advantage to like the uh, Doom and, and AVP days with BSP is that you could actually do a whole layout by yourself without involving another artist that's that's cool that you could do so much just with with a small team yeah i i would think just naturally with any game development it would be you'd have the more art centric side of the team and the more programming centric side of the team but they both have to kind of like understand each other i guess that's typically where the designer kind of comes in as the middleman is that the the designer's looking to do an experience, so he has to talk to the programmers, but he also wants it to be visually exciting, so he talks to the artists. And it, it depends on what project or team or company you're on. Sometimes because of the, the complexity of the graphic world today is that there's an art-centric start where the art artists sort of make something and then designers go in and try to you know kind of figure out how to make it work or you have the designers block out something and then artists come in and interpret that and make it more realistic from there. With with AVP two with everything you did on it you know when you look back on your career is there anything in there that's like i'm super fucking proud of that that is you know that is that is one of the defining moments of my time on that game is there anything like that in there for you for me it was those interactive moments i know it just comes down to just a bunch of switch boxes but 
for me, it was something that made the player pause in the, the environment and try to approach something without just shooting at it. And at the time, that didn't seem to be like a, a common thing in those type of games. You know, like with Doom, you would just run through the world and just shoot things and then move on in the next world. So I think that contributed and was a companion piece to the pacing of the, the environment as well, is you having to like slow down and think, wait, I could actually die pretty quick here if I'm not careful. So the, the atmospheric stuff combined with those interactive moments was something I was really proud of doing. And then everyone else sort of used it in their levels as well. You always got to wonder, you know, if I wasn't a part of the team, how would the product have been any different on any project you're on? And and that's it for this one, as far as you're concerned. It would have been different with those interactive elements. Yeah, I'm sure it would have been different because I don't know if people would have thought that way. I would have loved to expand more on what I started doing in the DM Alley map by doing multi-stage stuff with multiplayer because part of the Aliens fun is is getting together a bunch of people and trying to figure out how to deal with the other team or the other species like that. And But having a, a multiplayer system that was multiple stage, had different objectives at different times, would have been a really exciting way to expand the experience. Can't argue with you there. Well, that, that is actually everything from us, though. So before we do sign off, is there anything you'd like to share, any anecdote or thought from your time on AVP2 that we just haven't given you the opportunity to um, to talk about with any of our questions so far? Uh, not really. I, I think we talked about a lot. I did, you know, preparing for this, I did find a bunch of notes about that old designer cut or director's cut, if you want to call it that. So if I get time in the next year, I'll try to piece those together and write up some sort of article to sort of break it down. Where can folk find you online then? At uh, curiousconstructs.com is my website. And from there, they can track me down. I will also include uh, links into that in our post for the podcast if uh, you just find it easier to click those. But yeah, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, It was really nice to get an insight into such an important piece of site's history and and our personal history as well. Yeah, thanks thanks for having me. Yeah, it was was great talking and I hope you guys found something that was new to kind of think on and debate and figure out what to do with next. But it's a funny thing because I, I always say this, you know, when, when I do get the fortune to chat with people who work on the games, you know, they, they are not as well documented as, as the films are. So, you know, the development of those games and, and how they changed and the sort of difficulties that you faced while working on them aren't so well known. So it tends to it tends to be a really nice, uh, a fresh experience chatting to developers, learning more about those those other aspects of the, of the franchise. Well, cool. Well, I'm glad I was here. I'm glad you guys reached out, and I'm glad we had a chance to talk. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening. This has been Coco Hicks, a.k.a. Aaron Percival. And Ridgetop, a.k.a. Zeller. And Nathan Cheever, signing off. Mm-hmm.